And Randy, I don't know about that excuse with the golf ball. I might like to have that excuse with not seeing the golf ball. I think that would be a good thing to have built into my golf game. Uh, my golf game exists of putting. That's what, I, that's what I do. All right. Hey, well, um, thanks for being here and for um, connecting with us this morning, hearing a bit about Randy and Sherry. Um, when Randy and Sherry and I were talking in my office about this, boy, a couple weeks ago now, um, one of the things that we connected on was this, this reality that um, we had some similar issues growing up where I, my, my feeling of being a little distant from people was not because of a, a physical limitation, but just because I grew up as a minority in the Caribbean. I think it was in the 1% or 2% minority. So I kind of know what that's like growing up. And you feel a little different. You feel a little like, I'm not really a part of what's going on. And, and people get jokes that I don't get. And then I come back to America, and I'm not really a part of this culture either because I grew up thinking like, like they did over there. So you, you kind of grow up, and we were resonating a little bit on feeling like you're not quite part of the mainstream. And one of the things that, that happens when you're... Um, a, a kid growing up in the Caribbean, at least for me, is um, not only is there that, that sense there of being, you know, uh, feeling a little disenfranchised, but there's other things that happen um, to you within the context of growing up in Barbados, which few of you would have experienced. Uh, one of those things is we experience on a loose level, and that is this little thing called um, hurricane season, right? Here we have what's called, I don't know, um, fall. Uh, <laughs> But in Barbados, they have um, hurricane season. And as a kid growing up there, in that context, I remember as a like seven, eight-year-old um, thinking about how big this was that a hurricane could come through and tropical storms would form all the time. So we, we get hit by a tropical storm and tropical storm rarely hit by a big hurricane because they develop a little later after they get through the warm waters of the Caribbean Sea. So rare was the hurricane, but I didn't understand that as a kid. I just knew they called it hurricane season, which is like if you call it soccer season, you play soccer during that season. To call it hurricane season, you get hurricanes during that season. We didn't usually get them. But here's what happened when as a kid, imagine a seven or eight-year-old me um, with flowing locks of hair. Um, hard to imagine. The storms were predicted and they would come, and I would be, um, I would be so afraid of what would happen because I did not understand um, the impact of the, the power of the storm. And particularly in the evening when uh, and it gets dark about 6 o'clock, so storms come and they'll just, the wind is howling and the rain is beating against the windows, um, and I'm, I'm afraid, and so I go to the safest place I know to hide, and that is I go crawl in bed with mom and dad, um, right? I go crawl right in between mom and dad, and I just would lay there for a little while. And it's one thing to do that when you're seven, but it's another thing to do that when you're 17. <laughs> Can you imagine that? See, we, we all, like me, even though you may not have experienced tropical storms through the eyes of a seven or eight-year-old, um, we all, you know, Randy's story emphasizes this, my story emphasizes this, we all like to find places in this world that we can hide, that we can find as safe places that we can pull away from what we are afraid of the most. For me as a kid, it was getting in bed with mom and dad when I was seven and the storms would come. But it's different to do that when you're older, right? As you grow up and the storms of life still come, the safe places to hide are less and less. It's no longer cool to jump in bed with mom and dad when you're 30. You know, that, that's a little odd. 
because that safe place is gone. And so what do you do? What do you do when, you're, when you still need a safe place to kind of hide? One of the things that we do is we create a place in our life, and it's kind of, if you imagine your life and your soul and your heart and your brain um, as, a, as a collection of rooms with, with all kinds of different things happening within those rooms, one of the, the places that we nurture and we create is a little closet in the back room of this home layout. And that's a, a closet that we would simply call our thought life. And within that closet, we hide all kinds of things from people because we don't want them to know we're afraid of the storms anymore because we're 30, we're not 7. Or we're 90 and we're not 7. And we shouldn't be afraid of that anymore, so we'll hide that in our little closet called the thought life. And we'll just kind of tuck it in there. And within that little closet called the thought life are all kinds of things, all kinds of things that we protect that we don't want anyone to know about. And there's some things in there, that, and you're even thinking about your closet right now, that you're thinking, yeah, you know, boy, if anyone knew that I thought like this, you've committed crimes in that room. Come on now, you know you have. You've thought about stuff, and you're thinking, I would never do this, but boy, that'd be kind of, I wonder how I could pull off a bank robbery. I'm not going to do it. I just kind of wonder what that'd be like. You never told anybody that, but you've thought that. There's things within our thought life that we've thought about people, We've thought about our future. We've thought about our past. We've thought about our shame. We've thought about so many things that we have never, ever, ever, ever told anybody. But it becomes a safe place to hide our stuff. And one of the things that I'd like to say this morning is we think about these words of Jesus in which he's speaking to a group of disciples and trying to help them to understand what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? What does it look like to be somebody who follows Jesus and who loves the king of the kingdom? And one of the things that he, he says to the disciples, we covered this last week, is he says this, you, can't, you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven until your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees until it surpasses them, until the most religious people you think of, until your righteousness is better than them. At which point we react to that and say, that's not possible. And Jesus is essentially saying this, don't go further than them, go deeper. If you remember last week, don't go further, go deeper. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is not about external righteousness, but it's about the heart. It's about the soul. It's about the rooms that we create, including, including that little closet in there called our thought life, in which we stuff things that we think about people that no one else knows about. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven, the king wants control of this room too. In fact, not only does he want control of it, by the way, he knows what's in it. Which is terribly disconcerting when you think about all the things that you've thought about people and have never said. Isn't that strange? Imagine if, you, if, if all the thoughts that you had were spoken out, or written out on paper, and handed out as people walked out of church this morning with your name on top. This is what God already knows. This is part of the kingdom of heaven, of realizing that there's no safe place to hide my stuff. What Jesus is going to say is that To be part of the kingdom of heaven, it's not just what your house looks like on the outside, it's what your home, including the thought life, that closet in your heart, is about on the inside. Now, to be honest with you, this standard is really difficult to to follow, isn't it? This, This ideal of 
Not only does my outside have to measure up to whatever I think God wants, but now, listen, this is what the kingdom of heaven is saying, that your thought life is accountable as well. It's not just whether you dress up Sunday morning or don't dress up Sunday morning or read the Bible or don't read the Bible or do this or don't do that. It's not only that anymore. It now means that if you're going to follow the king of the kingdom, every, every, every little thing that you ever have thought of is accountable to the king. Every passing thought you've had negatively about somebody, every passing thought that you've had, every thing that you've thought in judgment of somebody else, any, any thought that you've ever had, there's no place to hide that in the kingdom of heaven. And here's what Jesus says. He says to you, if you're going to follow me, <clears throat> I want you to know that you, here's the standard. Be perfect. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is impossible so here's what Jesus does for us. He sets out a standard, an ideal standard, which is absolutely impossible, impossible to follow. And we live in this real world over here, and we look at that ideal standard. It comes out of Jesus' mouth. Be perfect. Every little part of your life is going to be accountable. And we look at that and say, what in the world am I going to do? Let me tell you this story. It's not unlike when, um, when we decided to drive home from Maine uh, overnight. Uh, Last month, uh, we made a little bit of a last-minute decision to drive home, so we weren't quite as prepared as we were, would have been otherwise. What our van encountered, me driving at the time, was we found ourselves somewhere around 3 in the morning getting on the New Jersey Turnpike, which is a living nightmare in and of itself. We get on the Turnpike, and I get the, the ticket for the toll booth, and I'm on the Turnpike, at which point... I realize I'm, I'm wholly dependent right now on my GPS system on my van. So I don't really know at this point how to get home until I follow this little computer thing. So I look at the ticket I'm trying to drive and then look and see how much I'm going to owe at the end. And it's like $550. It's a super expensive turnpike. No, I, th I forget how much it was. 13 bucks or something like that. It was crazy. And I look at it and I, all of a sudden I have a moment of panic because I realize I don't have that cash on me. I mean, who uses cash anymore? Credit, uh, credit card, that's what I have. I don't have the cash on me. So I'm driving, it's three in the morning, I'm driving down the turnpike, and all the time I'm realizing I cannot pay when I get there. I'm going to get to the toll booth at 3.30 in the morning, whatever time it was, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get arrested. <laughs> it's over. I, I'm, I'm, I've never been in that situation. I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't know what you do, but I have a credit card. Does that do anything? I don't, I'm thinking about my phone. There's no app on my phone that can get me out of the situation. I, mean, I'm, I just don't have the cash, and what am I going to do? And listen, this is, exactly, this is exactly what Jesus wants us to feel like. You're on the highway of life. You don't have the cash to pay the ideal standard. You're going to come to that toll booth, and he's going to say, I'm time to judge you. You're like, I fall short. And so here's what we do. Here's what we do. We do one of two things. One is, because we know Jesus' standards are so stinking high, we can choose not even to get on it at all. I'm not even going to get on the turnpike. I'm not even going to go down that road. I can't reach those ridiculous standards. So I'm going to find another way. In other words, I'm going to rebel against God's standards. I just can't do it. I've seen people burn out, and I'm not going to do it. Some of you have been there. You've been there. I can't do it. I can't pay at the end. I don't have the resources. 
I'm not going to do it. That's one response. Two responses is this. Okay, uh, I come from a hard work ethic kind of background, so that what a challenge, man. What a challenge to be perfect. Okay, I'm going to go farther than somebody else. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get down the road a little bit further. I have a little bit more money, a little bit more resources than that person, so I'm going to compare my righteousness to them. Forget the standard. No one can reach that. As long as I'm better than somebody else and get further down the road, hey, everything's great. But here's the tension we live in. There is always a tension between the real life that we live and the ideal standard that God holds out, particularly that Jesus holds out to these guys who are trying to figure out, how do I follow you? And here's what we want to do. We, in this space right here between our real life where we don't have the cash and the ideal world where we need it, what we try to do is we try to resolve that tension and figure it out ourselves. And I'd like to suggest to you a third option this morning, a third option for how in the world we face these issues here together. Okay? And this is going to be, if you will, it's going to be in Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to be this morning. How do we resolve this tension between the real life of where I really live, the difficulty of it, and the ideal standards of what God calls me to? So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Matthew chapter 5. Verses 21 to 26. If you don't have a Bible on you, there's one near you. It's uh, two different kinds of Bibles we have in our pews. The, uh, there's an older Bible that's a little bigger. That's page 937. There's a newer Bible, a little thinner. That's page 786. So 937 and 786. And again, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to take home and, uh, and have as our gift to you today, okay? So in this section, Jesus is going to begin talking to the disciples. He has just said to them, he's just said to this group of people gathered, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. The question is, what in the world does that mean? Am I supposed to be more righteous externally than the Pharisees? And the answer is assumed here, it's impossible. So Jesus drills deeper rather than further. And what he does now from verses 21 to the end of the chapter is he gives six different examples of what he means by your righteousness surpassing that of the Pharisees. And he begins in verses 21 to 26 with this issue that we all face, and that is how in the world do we get along? How in the world do the disciples of Jesus get along? How do people in the kingdom of heaven get along? When it's time to fight, what does it look like? How do we work together with one another? And what Jesus is going to do in this context, I love the way um, our commentator R.T. France writes about it. He says this, and related to all of these six things that Jesus is going to teach. He substitutes a 100% achievable righteousness with a totally open-ended ideal which will always remain beyond the grasp of the most committed disciple. This is reality. I want you to feel this this morning, that the ideals that Jesus is going to hold out to you and to me, if you want to follow him, are always, always, always going to be beyond your grasp. You will never get this right. We can't. Come on, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is the ideal that Jesus holds, and we live in this real, messy, broken world. And so what do we do? Do we compromise the ideal? No, I don't think we do at all. I don't think we do. Here's what I'd like to suggest we do, and that is this. 
I want to say this and I want to get into the text to show it to you. What do kingdom people do when it comes to resolving this tension between the ideal world and the real world? Here we go. Number one, aim for the king's ideal. Kingdom people do this. Kingdom people say, I'm going to aim for the king's ideal. His ideal is be perfect, therefore, as my heavenly father is perfect. Aim for that. But, check this out, but live in this broken world and grow in the space between. I want to flesh this out for you. Aim for the king's ideal. Don't ever, ever, ever stop aiming for this. You can never achieve it. Great? Right, you can never achieve it. Aim for it. But know that you live in this broken world, and what do I do with the space between here's my room to grow? Through the grace of God, here's my space to grow. But we will never grow if we reduce God's ideal. He didn't really mean be perfect. He just meant kind of be good enough. If, if I reduce the ideal to what I can do, I've got absolutely no room to grow. I also have no room to experience the king's grace and forgiveness within the kingdom. I don't have room for that because I don't need him. You've got to get on the turnpike and you've got to know I can't pay the toll, but you've got to get on anyway. And it stinks. But you have to. But you won't get arrested at the end. I'm a testament to that, okay? <laughs> you will have to pay them. Okay, so here we go. Verses 21 to 22. This is how Jesus begins his talking. This is the first ideal that he holds out there related to how in the world we relate to one another. Verse 21. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, that's the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. You've heard of them. This is number six. But, verse 21, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Okay, let, just stop that right there. This is the parallel Jesus is making. Hey, you've heard when you've killed people, you're subject to judgment. Now check it out. When you're angry, you're subject to the same judgment. This is impossible. This is, this is impossible. We've dismissed it because we live in the real and we say, well, he doesn't really mean just angry with anybody. I mean, he doesn't really mean that. Well, yes, he does. Check it out. He goes on to say this. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And we think, well, I've never said Raka. But anyone who says, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, well, I may have used the fool word before, so what, what do I do? These words are essentially synonymous. Raka is only used here. It's translated in other sections as, here's, as stupid. Okay, I know we don't usually say that word in church. Stupid. It's also translated as empty. In, in other words, it's the word. It's the word that your little brother would use at home to annoy you. That's the word. Whatever that is, that is the word. An offensive word, yes. Uh, a bothersome word, yes. Kind of like fool, yeah. But that's it, that's it, that's it. Okay, that's it. Now imagine, imagine, you're at home and your brother calls you a whatever, um, a stupid head. And, and then here's what happens. Your mom calls the police. Seriously. And then, and then the police come, and they take away little brother. And, you know, you're feeling great, right? Okay. But they, they come, and they take away the little brother. And, and seriously, and they take him away. And then, you know what? They, they export him. 
They send him around the world to live in an orphanage somewhere else, and you take his supplies, his stuff in his room, and you burn it. No, seriously. And you remove all memory of him. Really? How ridiculous a punishment for saying, you stupid head. Imagine if you're speeding, you get stopped for going 60 and a 55. Like, are you kidding me? People are going 97. You're going 60 in a 55. You broke the law. Cop pulls you over. You get out of the car. Handcuffs in the back of the cruiser. We're going downtown. You get convicted, and your sentence, your sentence immediately is the death penalty. Seriously. You are now going to spend the rest of your years locked up in a maximum security prison waiting for lethal injection. I'm serious. Think about that. And we all react to that like, this is ridiculous. The, the punishment does not fit the crime. I mean, come on. That, that's ridiculous. And that is exactly what Jesus wants us to feel with anger. It is a big deal. It is not a small deal. It is a really big deal. It's as big as murder. In the kingdom of heaven... What you feel on the inside is just as big as what you do on the outside. And these words that Jesus used to describe to the, the people listening would be the words like, you stupid head, you fool. Words that are used to, to incite a fight with your siblings, but not words that you would get sued over or taken to prison over. Jesus wants us to feel like, are you kidding? I mean, every time I think that someone is, is a stupid head... I'm in danger of the fire of hell? That's what he wants us to feel as kingdom people. And this is an ideal standard we cannot keep. The idea of of the fire of hell here is this idea of Gehenna. It's a place outside of Jerusalem where prior to the New Testament, they would take human sacrifice out and and offer it to the god Molech, Molech. Later on, they used it as a garbage dump where they'd burn all the trash. And this is what was in their minds of the hearers of this when Jesus is speaking. This place outside Jerusalem, which became a trash dump, and the fire would consume what is there. And Jesus says, you use those simple words, it reveals a depth in your heart that is a problem for kingdom people. And I'm telling you, this is impossible. This This is absolutely impossible to keep. If you're angry with your brother, you're in danger of the fire of hell. It's impossible. And so what do we do? In the real world, we just kind of soften that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really mean that. Raka must mean something else in the original language, and he must mean it's just, everyone gets angry. And Jesus is holding out this ridiculous standard for kingdom people. So what do we do? Here's what we do. The question is always, what do we do? What do we do? Not just what do we hear. Okay, what do we do? Verses 23 to 26 kind of fleshes out what do we do. Jesus gives us the answer. What do I do? Okay, I hear it. Anger is important. Dealing with that is important. What do I do? Therefore, verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And then he gives another story that's very, very similar to the first. 
Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court, and do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Those stories are really quite similar, not a lot of differences between the two, just two different images. The first one in particular, we have latched onto and heard a lot of this in our, in our, in our history. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's speaking to people in Galilee right now, and he's saying, if you take your gift to the, to the altar, to us that means, I don't know what that means, like bring a couple bucks and I guess throw it in the offering plate when I come to church, is that what you mean? No, here's what it means. Walk your little sheep, walk your little lamb to the temple to be sacrificed, okay? So, but here's the deal, you live in Galilee, that's 80 miles to Jerusalem. So that is about a week, a week, and you are walking your sheep for a week, to Jerusalem to sacrifice this thing in Jerusalem. You can't sacrifice anywhere else this time than there. He's speaking to people here in Galilee. He's saying, when you go 80 miles to do this, and it takes you a week. Oh, and I get there. It's now a week later, and me and the sheep have traveled, and here we are. We're ready to sacrifice this thing. And it's like I have an epiphany. Oh, I'm upset with somebody. I should have thought about that before. Okay, hang on, little sheep. Tie you up. Now I'm going to walk a week back to this person that I'm upset with. I'm going to go way out of my way to come back 80 miles for a week's worth of walking, and now I'm going to resolve this with them. And then I'm going to go a week back to my little sheep that I've tied up. Then I'm going to sacrifice it and then come back. This thing that should take two weeks is now taking a month. And here's what he's saying. Go out of your way to resolve conflict. Go out of your way to make a way for relationships to be restored. And it's quite simple that way. The aim is, I'm not angry at anybody ever. Impossible. Here's the reality. We, we, live, we live over here where we are living in a world in which... Um, which there's bullying going on. Randy testified to that this morning. You could testify to that this morning. There's cyberbullying going on on Facebook and via text messages, even on Twitter a little bit. There's people that have upset you in a way that you, if you were to think about it right now, you're, you're going to think, how in the world can I forgive that? They keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. These people make, make me angry. This situation is unresolved. There's people at school who make other people angry and you kind of get involved and you kind of try to play along with the game of, oh, she did this and he did that and she did this and he did that. You just play along with this game. And Jesus is saying, if you have anger in your heart, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, theologically speaking, it doesn't mean salvation is at risk. He's using this to make a teaching point. It is a big deal. Because why? Because I know every room in your house. And I know that place you like to hide those feelings in that closet called your thought life. And there's no safe place to hide that in the kingdom. It is all under judgment. Impossible standards to meet. Here's what kingdom people do. Kingdom people aim for the king's ideal and yet live 
in this broken world, knowing that I can't reach that ideal, but I'm going to live here and then grow in the process from here to here. And so kingdom people, when it comes to conflict and getting along, kingdom people go out of their way to make a way. They go out of their way to make a way. They go out of their way to figure out how in the world can I resolve this. Kingdom people are the first to resolve conflict. Kingdom people are the first to show their kids, you don't get angry like that at school. Kingdom people are the first to show their kids, yes, our family's upset with us, but you know what, we're going to figure it out. Kingdom people are the first ones to grow and not, not throw all the junk out on Facebook and say, I'm mad at this person, mad at this person, mad at this person, mad at this person. Kingdom people don't do that. Kingdom people know intuitively in their heart, I have anger right now. I need to grow in what this looks like. I need to grow. This is part of the kingdom. So kingdom people go out of their way. They go out of their way. This is not easy. They go out of their way to make a way to resolve this issue. And so here's what I would like us to do this morning. This is going to be funny. It's going to feel weird. Any of you with adult sensibilities are going to be bothered by this. So this will be fun. Uh, Today, when you leave and you go out to the car, today. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, As you get ready to leave, you pull the keys out of your pocket, or your kids have pulled the keys out of your pocket, and they're already in the car. They have it started, and they have the tunes cranked up, and you can't even hear what's going on, or they're starting to put it in drive, and they're only five and pulling away. Yank it on your arm. You go out to your car. Here's what I want you to do. Because of this truth that kingdom people go out of their way to make a way, I want to drive it home this way for you this morning. I'm going to ask you to do this. You get to your car. I want you to go out of your way to get in your car today. Here's what I mean. I want you to go out of your way. You're going to get to your car. You're going to get to the driver's side or the passenger side, and you're going to walk around your car twice before you get in your car today. And and as you do, and as you do, I want you to think about this reality. This is stupid. Okay, number one, you're going to think, this is dumb. Whose idea was this? But secondly, you're going to think, I'm going out of my way. Why? Why, why, why? Because kingdom people go out of their way to make a way. It doesn't make sense at all. People are going to drive by and like, what is wrong with the people that come out of that place? What a bunch of idiots. And they're going to think, what in the world's going on? But here's the deal. Kingdom people, and you're going to remember this, I hope, go out of their way in relationships to make it work. Because we have a standard, an ideal standard that we cannot keep, but we dare not let go. Once we compromise on this standard, we have no room to grow and to experience the grace of our king, the grace of our savior. Kingdom people go out of their way to make a way work with one another, no matter what. Tough teaching, tough teaching, impossible teaching. It's what Jesus lays out. By the way, if you think today is tough for anger, come back next week. We're all going to be guilty before we even walk in the door. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminders from your word about what it looks like to try to get along with one another, to be people who take it seriously, that we want to live in peace and harmony with one another. That as Paul reminds us later on that in Romans 12, 
in as much as it's possible and as far as it depends on us to live at peace with everybody. So we want to do that, and man, do we fall short of that ideal standard. We fall so short. But Father, help us not to give up. Help us not to look at the end of the turnpike and say, man, I can't pay that toll. I can't get there, so I'm not even going to get on. When we do that, we refuse the opportunity to grow, refuse the opportunity to be challenged, and refuse the invitation to experience your grace and your forgiveness as we grow through the brokenness of our lives. So we're going to sing now this final song to walk as he did and we want that to be the the spirit of our hearts god to walk as your son did to have people who as we go through our days look at what we do and say that's jesus why do they forgive so freely why are they not angry when others are how is it they're teaching their kids to get along it's jesus they're kingdom people. They're going out of their way to make a way. In Jesus' name we pray.